Would you open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5? It's on page 541 if you need to grab a blue Bible under the chair in front of you. Uh, Before I get into the the text, I I just need to tell you how skillfully you have been shepherded through the worship service to this point. And that has nothing to do with me. (laughs) Uh, John Chung put the service together. Uh, All he knew was my text and my title. And as I'm worshiping along with you, I'm picking up all of these little pieces that John, as he prays through the service, as he's looking at music, selecting scripture passages, everything from the fear of the Lord to the renewal song where we're singing religion just can't justify any wrongs, to uh, our excellence is in the cross. Uh, all, all of these things I hope you'll, you'll pick up on. Um, and part of the reason I share that with you is to commend the worship team, because without a leader, a fearless leader at the helm, a director of worship ministries, who is going to be with us on Labor Day weekend, he's uh, coming from Arizona, pray for his house to sell, uh, but without a leader, this team has done an amazing job, and uh, I want you to, I want to encourage you to recognize them, praise God for them, their commitment to the church, their hard work, their submission to the Spirit to fill them as artists, as singers and players, but also, like John, uh, a few of the leaders, like uh, as designers, to put these pieces together to shepherd you so that you see Jesus more clearly. And so, uh, thank you, John. Thank you, team, all of you guys. Uh, You've done an amazing job. And uh, when we have a director of worship ministries at the helm, we trust that it's going to be even better uh, to the glory of God. This morning, we resume our series on the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've had a few guest preachers over the summer, so let me review a few key themes from the book to uh, get us all back on the same page. First, the the title of the book, Ecclesiastes, is just the Latin translation of the title the author gives to himself. In the Hebrew, the title is Kohelet, and it simply means teacher or leader of an assembly. He's most likely King Solomon. King David's son. Secondly, the idea of hevel. That's the Hebrew word that we translate meaningless, and it's the key word of the book of Ecclesiastes. Hevel means vapor or breath, something that's here one minute and gone the next. Poof. Other translations call it vanity, vanity of vanities. It's just nothingless. And so when he says this too is meaningless, it's the word hevel. A third thing we need to understand is how to understand the teacher when he says something as stark and cynical as, this too is meaningless. Another phrase is incredibly important, and that is, under the sun. In other places, under the heavens. And uh, what he means is he's referring to a perspective on reality that only takes into account the natural world and not the supernatural And so, this is the teacher's attitude when he says everything is meaningless under the sun. If this is all there is, if there is no heaven, if there is no eternity, if it's only the natural and not the supernatural as well, then everything is heaven, meaningless. There's got to be more. That's the unspoken undercurrent that runs throughout Ecclesiastes. There's got to be more. Let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 5, first seven verses. 
Listen carefully. These are God's words. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we want to more and more fear You. Just as John led us in the beginning of the service, we mean what the Scripture means, which is we want to be overwhelmed. We want to be in awe at who You are because words cannot describe You. The earth cannot contain You. So, Father gracious to give us a glimpse of Your majesty and glory. Be graciously to stoop down low and speak clearly to us, Your people, through Your Spirit, by Your Word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We start with a warning about God's presence. First, um, remember some big-picture things about King Solomon. He was a man who had it all. He had wine and women, wealth and fame. He had wisdom that was unsurpassed throughout the world, given to him straight from God. He accomplished amazing things, an architectural and artistic wonder such as the temple in Jerusalem, built under Solomon's leadership over a span of seven years. But toward the end of his life, likely when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, he was still searching for purpose and meaning. He says in chapter 2, verse 11, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, hevel, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Work, play, philanthropy, cultural and artistic projects, entertainment, recreation, nothing brought meaning. Oh, but what about religion? Maybe that will bring the antidote to Hevel. Maybe that will do the trick. Solomon no doubt tried that, and his warning here in chapter 5 is not so fast. Be careful. Imagine showing up here at GRC and pulling into the parking lot, and you see sections of the property cordoned off by crime scene tape and you're wondering what's going on. You park your car, you walk through uh, the entrance, and as you come in, there's this big, bright, gaudy warning sign, like you would see driving down the road, passing the nuclear reactor, or stepping foot into a park next to a Superfund site, things we can't imagine here in North Jersey, but just just play with me here. (laughs) Uh, Contaminated soil. Um, Big warning sign. Church inside, warning, and you come in. Well, Solomon, the teacher, starts Ecclesiastes chapter 5 with a warning. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house 
of God. That might not sound that serious. It might sound kind of tame, but everything the Bible has to say about approaching the house of God emphasizes that Solomon means what he's saying. Be careful. This warning is serious. Let me briefly show you what I mean from Scripture. If we turn back to Genesis chapter 3, the sin of Adam and Eve mean that they crafted in the image of God can no longer exist in the very presence of God because God is perfectly holy. He is set apart. He is other. And sin is the exact opposite. And so Adam and Eve get banished from the Garden of Eden. And in the very next verse after the banishment, the Lord sets cherubim. We don't know how many, but these were some kind of heavenly creatures, angelic-like creatures. He sets cherubim at the entrance of the Garden of Eden with flashing swords to guard anyone who might find it and want to get in to the very presence of God. Much later, if we turn to the next book of the Bible, Exodus, God rescues His people from slavery to Egypt. He ushers them through the Red Sea into the wilderness to the foot of Mount Sinai where He gives them all kinds of instructions, starting with the Ten Commandments. But as prominent as the Ten Commandments may be in our awareness, the bulk of Exodus as God gives instruction to His people is not the Ten Commandments. Um, It's not even how to live as a society, as a culture. It is how to worship. By far, the lion's share of Exodus is spent in details telling the people how to worship. They were slaves for over 400 years. All they knew how to do was to obey their master and struggle to survive. And so God begins to reshape His people, and He basically tells them this, people who are truly free worship the Lord. People who are truly free worship the Lord. Why? Because slavery, whether it's to a tyrant king or to sin, whether it's political and social or whether it's spiritual, slavery stifles worship. But true freedom enables you to see God as He really is and then respond in the most natural way possible with awe and obedience. So most of Exodus is consumed with details about the priesthood and the building, furnishing, and moving of the tabernacle, which was basically an elaborate set of tents. It was mobile church as the nation of Israel was traveling through the wilderness onto the promised land. And at the heart of the tabernacle was a curtained-off room containing the Ark of the Covenant. It was a wooden chest four feet long, about two feet wide, not very big. Inside of the chest was stored, among other things, the tablets, the stone tablets uh, chiseled out with the Ten Commandments, and the ark chest had a lid with two cherubim on either end. There they are again, guarding access to the very presence of God. Years later, the temple in Jerusalem would be the permanent replacement for the tabernacle when the people of Israel were settled in uh, Jerusalem and settled in the promised land. Why all this detail? Why all this fuss in the biblical narratives? Because sin separates people from a God who is perfectly holy. 
Sin prevents any of us from approaching God, from standing in His presence, from being in this close kind of intimacy. And so God instituted the sacrificial system that allowed sinful humanity to approach this holy God in worship. The um, proper consequence of sin is death. And so the animal slain at the altar outside of the tabernacle or outside of the temple was a substitute for the worshiper. Blood had to be shed. And only priests could do that work in helping the people approach God through worship, through sacrifice, blood spilt in order to atone for sin. All of that biblical background emphasizing something behind Solomon's warning at the beginning of chapter 5, be careful. There is no such thing as casual worship. There's no such thing as casual worship. If God has every right to bring the sentence of death because sin is pure rebellion against the king of kings, this warning better be taken seriously. Warning. God's presence near. Why does that idea seem not only unfamiliar in this day and age, but to many people offensive? that I would have to be careful. If God is love, why would I have to be careful when I approach Him? That leads, secondly, to cats and dogs. A guy named Bob Shogren uh, writes about what he calls cat and dog theology, and it's really easy to understand. This is what he says. A dog says, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, you must be God. But a cat says, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, I must be God. <laughs> And Shogren uses cat and dog theology to illustrate the difference between seeking the glory of God and seeking the glory of self. It's the difference between I exist to serve you, you are my master, and you are gracious to be good to me, and you exist to serve me. The world revolves around me, cats and dogs. So when you come to the house of God, No longer the tabernacle in the wilderness, no longer the temple in Jerusalem, but the church of Jesus Christ wherever He dwells among His people. When you come to the house of God, which describes you more accurately, cat or dog theology of worship, is your religious activity all about you, all about satisfying your desires, matching your preferences for how... Not only all of this should unfold in style, but how people should treat you, how God should respond to you. That's the cat way of thinking. Or is it all about the Lord, your master whom you delight to worship and serve and obey? And uh, in that case, the dog-like theology, the biblical background that I walked us through adds to worship a sense of awe and reverence overwhelmingness towards God and not a casual, God is my buddy, God is my life coach, God exists to bless me when I do the right things. If we're honest with ourselves, every last one of us needs to, because of the influence of sin in us, every last one of us needs to constantly push back against our cat-like tendencies that measure our faith in God by what God does for me. And if that sounds a bit unfair, like an exaggeration, let me ask a question. 
when you're struggling, whether it's chronic pain or extended unemployment or dysfunction and brokenness in relationship, do you find that that crisis, that suffering, that stretch of uh, a, a pain in your life, do you find that that stretch draws you closer to the Lord? Or does it find you more distant from the Lord? Do you blame God for fixing what it, uh, not fixing what is broken? And, and you've prayed. You've gone to church. You, you, you keep serving and giving and sacrificing. Or do you become more dependent on Him, more focused on His promises that are far greater than a few more years of health, and a lot more financial stability and easy relationships. Do you find yourself in suffering and chronic issues farther from God or closer to God? If struggles lead to distance from God, then that suggests that your faith is strongly influenced by or maybe dictated by how well He's doing in carrying out your perfect plan for your life. Because God, you're not doing too well. I'm disappointed in your job performance, God. I have prayed, and this is what I deserve, cat-like thinking, and you have not delivered, and therefore, I'm going to step away. I'm mad at you. I'm disappointed. That is a little litmus test for how we treat God. Do we come to the house of God thinking like cats? He exists to serve me or more like dogs. I exist to serve Him. I delight in obeying my Master. Religion so easily degenerates into a means of getting something from God, using Him to get what we want. God becomes our servant in that scenario. And so here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Solomon's warning is against using religion to achieve purpose and meaning, let alone to use religion to manipulate God to get what you want. The first thing he adds after his initial warning is this, verse 1, go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. That warning continues in the next verses with sins of the mouth, we might call them, being quick to speak and slow to listen. The Apostle James in in, uh, chapter 1 of his letter um, urges the opposite. He says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. He adds that element. Thirdly, the teacher here has in mind, first, words toward God in prayer, verse 2. But I think the proverb in verse 3 gives us a more general principle. Usually, proverbs apply to all of life. And that suggests this set of sins of the mouth applies to other relationships, in addition to our relationship with God, speaking to Him in prayer, words towards others sinfully like gossip and slander and busy chatter. Verse 3 says, many words mark the speech of a fool. The next verses, starting in verse 4, describe another way of using religion to manipulate God, making promises or vows. Now, Uh, There are a number of examples of vows uh, made by people in the Bible. Some of them are noble, like the vow of Hannah when she conceived Samuel. She dedicates the son 
long prayed for, long agonized over son to the Lord in service. He becomes a, a, a servant in the temple. Other vows are incredibly foolish. They're rash, like Jephthah's vow in Judges. So how do you tell the difference? Two questions that might help us. First of all, if you make a vow to God, are you making a vow in exchange for something that you want, like this is a negotiation? God, if you let this interview tomorrow work out really well, I will give more. I'll start treating people more kindly. I, I, I'll, I'll become a kids' club volunteer, Lord. I, I'll even do that. <laughs> okay. Um, that's manipulation, just a variation on cat theology. That's seeing religion as, as, as a means not to honor God in, in biblical fear and reverence and awe, being overwhelmed by who He is. That's using religion to get what you want. And Solomon says, don't even bother. Second question, if you do make a promise to God, there's nothing inherently wrong with making a vow, promising God something. The question is, will you keep your word? Because this is an issue of integrity. This is what Deuteronomy 23 says. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. God doesn't play games with you. Uh-uh-uh, I'll give you this if you promise to do this. That's, that, maybe that gives us a, an example of how not to parent, right? how not to bribe our children. Um, God doesn't play those kinds of games. Deuteronomy says, if you make a vow, you did it freely before the Lord. Keep your promise period. The teacher in verse 5 here, Ecclesiastes, says it's better not to make a vow in the first place. And if you do, don't say what you don't really mean, don't make promises you won't keep, and definitely don't bargain with God. That's one of my favorite verses uh, reflected in the song John pulled out of the archives. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So, shut it up. (laughs) Don't you see the right relationship? Awe, biblical fear, reverence, overwhelmingness. If you know your relationship to God, you are not quick to start chattering back at Him. You're slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry. When the people of God too easily fall back into cat-like theologies of worship, seeing God as a genie in the sky who exists to bless us, especially when we are good little Christians, morally upright, doing the right thing, and therefore God is supposed to respond to us. When we think that way and act that way, is it any surprise when people turn away from God Because the church looks nothing like a grateful bunch of sinful, broken people who are now being renovated through the grace of Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder when people turn away? So maybe this kind of sign outside church would be appropriate. Warning, sinners inside. Collateral damage is guaranteed because you will have to sit next to a sinner, flawed, prideful, selfish, me-centered, just like yourself. 
warning. The church can so easily make God a small God, a man-centered God that people have no use for. In his book, uh, Blue Like Jazz, Donald Miller uh, describes an event at the local college. He wasn't in college at the time, but he was uh, part of a group of Christians ministering near the college in Oregon. The college would have this wild party one weekend in the spring every year. And so he joked to a friend that they should set up a confession booth in the middle of the quad to make it easy for all of the people uh, engaged in all kinds of simple, simple behaviors throughout the weekend to conveniently show up and confess their sins. Well, his friend Tony said, that's a great idea. <laughs> and he told their other Christian friends, and it's not up here on the screen, but this is how they responded. Penny put her hands over her mouth, whether that was, <laughs> you know, or not. Nadine smiled. Ivan laughed. Mitch started drawing the design on a napkin. Tony nodded. I wet my pants. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Are we going to do this? But Tony turned the idea upside down. This is what he said. Just listen. Here's the catch. We're not actually going to accept confessions. We're going to confess to people that as followers of Jesus, we have not been very loving. We have been bitter, and for that we are sorry. We will ask them to forgive us, and we will tell them that in our selfishness, we have misrepresented Jesus on this campus. We will tell people who come into the booth that Jesus loves them. And the story says, once it got going, for two hours, there was a line out the door of college students, maybe half drunk, waiting to get in, not to confess their sins, but to hear confession from Christians. What an idea. The church, the Bible tells us, is the bride of Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you believe in Him as Lord and Savior, you are given this privileged status and identity that could not be surpassed. The bride of Christ promised this intimate relationship, this bond, this belonging. But look around. <laughs> we are not pretty at all in our sin. We're downright ugly. We are, in fact, the unfaithful spouse to the perfectly faithful God. And under the sun, looking with merely natural physical eyes, there's nothing to admire whatsoever. There's a lot of dysfunction to point out instead. Oh, but God. Those are gospel words. But God sees His bride the church above the sun with spirit-filled eyes. He sees a pure bride adorned for union with the Lord Jesus Himself. How is that possible? Lastly, church above the sun is the new temple. We've talked with the biblical, about the biblical background of tabernacle and temple. The mobile church, the permanent dwelling in the city of Jerusalem, where God's presence was symbolized. The glory cloud would fill the tabernacle, would fill the temple, but God dwelt in heaven, on the throne of heaven. He didn't actually come out and hang out with His people Israel. He was symbolized, but here's what we find when we turn to the pages of the New Testament. 
John chapter 1 tells us that God came in the person of God the Son, Jesus, called the Word. And he says, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's the same word, made His dwelling among us. And God the Son reveals the fullness of God the Father, and we have seen His glory. The first chapter of John's letter, 1 John chapter 1, says, we've seen it, we've heard it, we've touched Him. And we're just telling you what we know with our natural eyes in addition to our supernatural eyes. God in the New Testament, in the person of Jesus, His presence has now come among His people. In Christ, we might say, one author puts it, that God the Father set up a confession booth in our midst. He has something He wants us to hear from Him. Obviously not sin, because sin is the exact opposite of who God is. Sin is the opposite of holiness. But what He wants us to hear is His declaration of love to an undeserving bride like us. He wants us to understand the extent to which He's willing to go in order to heal and to restore and to forgive And that's described in this picture of marriage from Ephesians chapter 5. Christ loved the church. How did He love her? And gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Warning. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, a warning, do not casually approach a holy God. Do not approach Him to manipulate Him with religion. Don't think that religion can address the hevel, the meaninglessness of your life. Your sin means you could never approach a holy God anyway, but Jesus the Son has taken your sin upon Himself on the cross of Calvary where He suffered the fullness of heaven, hell in your place. And if you trust in Him, He offers you gifts of freedom and forgiveness and family status and intimacy beyond compare. Warning. The church, including this one, is full of unfaithful, idolatrous, rebellious, dysfunctional, sinful men, women, and children. Church under the sun is pretty ugly. Oh, but the church also happens to be the bride of Christ. And if you can see with eyes of faith, with spirit-filled eyesight, you'll catch a glimpse of church above the sun from God's merciful perspective, and you'll see what God is doing to make His people, the bride, holy and blameless on the day of Christ, betrothed to His very Son, promised this union and the glory of eternity in His very presence. Religion, it's got its place. Not to manipulate God, not to make Him your servant, But if religion is paired with a sense of awe, fear of the Lord, overwhelmingness of who He is and what He has done in the person of Jesus Christ, only then 
can it lead you to a life of anti-hevel, meaning purpose, fulfillment, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that all of the excellence and beauty and strength and wisdom and status that we seek, thank you, Jesus, that it can all be found in the cross and in the empty tomb. Death and resurrection, Lord, answer, address, fill every gap that we feel, every need that we long for to be satisfied. Show us, Lord, the emptiness that we achieve when we fill it with substitutes for your glory and lead us to your every perfect promise to know that in you, Lord Jesus, our hearts are most fulfilled perfectly now and for eternity. We pray. Amen.